Morning, Calvary family. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Isaiah 53. And uh, in our journey through this wonderful book, we've come to perhaps the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. Now, as you're turning there, you probably have noticed in the bulletin that our text is listed as beginning at chapter 52, verse 13, and there's a reason for that. There's virtually a unanimous view amongst Bible teachers and scholars that chapter 52, verses 13 and 15 are part of the literary unit which extends through the end of chapter 53. So while for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to oftentimes just refer to Isaiah chapter 53, I want to make sure you realize that we're including chapter 52, verses 13 through 15 in this vital section. So I want to begin by reading the section in its entirety. We're going to read uh, beginning in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and read all the way through the end of chapter 53. Listen to these vital words in this most important section. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering... He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, 
as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Well, as we begin our study of this passage, I want to begin by just giving you kind of a general overview, kind of zooming out and just making a few general observations to kind of set the context a little bit and to help you observe kind of some features of this key section. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that this is what's called the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there are four what we call servant songs. Well, what is a servant song? The servant songs are messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah, which are written in a beautiful poetic form and contain really vital messianic prophetic information. And there are four of them, and the way that the Moody Bible Commentary summarizes them, I've put on the screen for you. The first servant song is in chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, which describes the responsibilities of the Messiah. The second one is in chapter 49, 1 through 13, which describes the roles of the Messiah. The third is in chapter 50, verses 4 through 11, which describes the rejection of the Messiah. And then we've come now to the fourth servant song in chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 3, which describes the redemption made by the Messiah. That's the first general observation. The second general observation I want you to make is to notice that the first servant song and the last servant song begin with the same words. And actually the first few verses of both have a, the same theme even. Chapter 42, verse one, the first words of the first servant song says, behold my servant. And here in chapter 52, verse 13, it says again, behold my servant. And the first few verses of chapter 42 and then the first few verses of this servant psalm at the end of chapter 52 have similar themes. This forms what we call an inclusio. It's where the author makes an introduction and a conclusion which are similar to one another in order to indicate to the reader that a key section is now completed. So the servant songs are introduced in chapter 42, verse 1, with the phrase, Behold my servant, and now the concluding one again begins with, Behold my servant. So chapter 53 is the great conclusion of the messianic prophecies which were being laid out for us from chapters 42 through 53. This is kind of the glorious mountain peak of messianic prophecy that we've been climbing to for the last 10 chapters. Third general observation is I want you to notice the structure of this passage. In this passage, there are five stanzas with three verses each. So five stanzas each with three verses. The first stanza is chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. That's kind of the prologue or introduction. Then you have the second stanza in chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, the third in verses 4 through 6, the fourth in verses 7 through 9, and then the concluding stanza, stanza number 5, is in verses 10 through 12. And in most of your English translations, you'll notice that these stanzas are kind of marked out by, by chapter or section divisions because they're, uh, they're uh, very clear in the text, these 
five separate stanzas. So these five stanzas are going to be the basis then for our main outline that we're going to follow for the next five messages in the book of Isaiah. We're going to cover one stanza at a time and cover five of them one after another. Now there's a fourth general observation I want to make and that's that these five stanzas follow what we call a chiastic structure. What is a chiastic structure? It's a very common uh, Hebrew literary technique where the first and the last stanzas have a similar theme, kind of an introduction and a conclusion. Then the second and the fourth stanzas have a similar theme. And then the third one, right in the middle, really is the heart of the message. It's the main idea placed right in the center. And that's the structure that this follows in the five stanzas of Isaiah 53. So let me give you kind of the outline that we're going to follow for the next five weeks as we study one stanza at a time. The first stanza is the revelation of the exalted servant. And that corresponds then to the fifth stanza, which is the resurrection of the exalted servant. Then you can see that Stanzas number two and four go together. They both talk about the suffering servant. We have the rejection of the suffering servant in stanza two and the righteousness of the suffering servant in stanza four. And then right in the middle, right at the heart of Isaiah 53 is the third stanza, which talks about redemption by the servant's sacrifice, by his substitutionary death on the cross for us. So you have the revelation of the exalted servant, then the rejection of the suffering servant, redemption by the servant's sacrifice, righteousness of the suffering servant, and then resurrection of the exalted servant. Now there's a fifth and final general observation that I want you to make, and that's I want you to kind of scan the passage and notice that there is a distinct shift in the verb tenses. I want you to notice that in the prologue, that's the first stanza in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, as well as in the epilogue, which is the fifth stanza in chapter 53, verses 10 through 12, so the first and the last stanzas, most of the verb tenses are future. He will do this. He will be this. He will receive this or that, right? So they're future verb tenses in the introduction and in the conclusion. But the three stanzas in the middle, stanzas two, three, and four, all use primarily past tenses. He was. So you have he will in stanzas one and five, and then you have he was in stanzas two through four. Now this switch in the verb tenses tells us a couple things. I want to just point them out to you first. As you hopefully noticed in the outline, the first and the last stanzas focus on the exaltation of the Messiah, whereas the middle three stanzas focus on his suffering. So the beginning and end focus on his exaltation, and the middle three focus on his suffering. In fact, if you were to really look at Isaiah 53 from the big picture view, you would say that this passage teaches us two major things about the Messiah. The Messiah will suffer, and the Messiah will be exalted. And those two things, of course, correspond to the first and the second comings of Christ. The first coming where he suffers, and the second coming where he comes in glory. 
So Isaiah 53, written 700 years before the first coming, clearly teaches that the Messiah will suffer and the Messiah will be exalted. And so the people should have known this. Now, what wasn't revealed to the people is what is described in Colossians 1.26, and that is the amount of time between the first and second coming of Christ, between his suffering and his exaltation, that long period of time was not revealed to the people in the Old Testament. That was, Colossians 1.26 says, a mystery not formally revealed. And that mystery was how patient God would be in order to give people more time to repent, in order to enable more people from more parts of the world to come to saving faith in Christ before the second coming. But for seven centuries before the first coming of Christ, the people already knew that the Messiah would suffer and then the Messiah would be exalted. And they knew it from this passage as well as others. Second thing I want you to notice from the verbal tenses is the fact that Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 9 use primarily past tenses. In other words, it is something which the prophecy says will be spoken by believers after the death of the Messiah. It's in the kind of first plural. Surely our griefs he bore. He, he paid for our sin. So this is a prophecy made 700 years before Christ and it looks not only to the cross but to the confession of faith made by those who will believe in Jesus the Messiah. In fact, several scholars call Isaiah 53, 1 through 9 the confession of faith of the believer and also the confession of faith of repentant Israel at the end of the tribulation where they, as Zechariah says, they look on the one whom they have pierced and they mourn for him as for an only son and they come to faith and they confess this faith of belief in Jesus the Messiah. The past tenses remind us that this is the heart of all true believers. All true believers read these words and we see ourselves in these words. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him and the true believer sees himself in the us and in the hour. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek and the past tenses in Isaiah remind us that this is the confession of faith of the believer as he looks back to the cross. This is what he believes about the meaning of the cross. Well, with those kind of general observations in mind, let's now dig into that first stanza in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. And I've entitled this section, The Revelation of the Exalted Servant. This is, he's being revealed as the exalted one. Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will 
understand. Now, I want you to notice the very first word, behold. Behold my servant. That's how the servant songs began. Behold my servant. And here again, behold my servant. The very first lesson in the text is the need to pay attention to Jesus. To pay attention to Christ. Behold him. Behold the Messiah. And as sad as it is, this exhortation to pay attention is where most people fail. You know, there are those who are religious, they claim to believe in Jesus, but they deny his atoning work. They deny the substitutionary atonement. That's where someone can go astray. But that's not where most people go astray. That's a very small number of people, a very minority. Where most people go astray is right in the very first word. They simply don't pay attention to Christ. They insult him in the most demeaning way possible, which is by ignoring him. Acting as if he matters not. You know, the spiritual and the testimonial and the historical evidence for the claims of Christ are so compelling that most people who honestly take a look at Christ wind up believing in Christ. If you behold him, you will believe in him. So how does Satan, who wants to keep the souls of men captive, how does he keep them from Christ? He simply tries to prevent them from paying any attention at all. Apathy is his primary weapon. Satan knows that if people behold Christ, they will believe in Christ. So the devil does all he can to keep people entertained, distracted, and spiritually apathetic. Whatever will just keep them from heeding God's call to stop, to pay attention, and to behold the Savior. So this first word is really the main application. Behold, behold my servant, says the Father. What was the words that came out of John the Baptist's mouth when he saw Jesus coming? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What did God the Father say on the Mount of Trans- both at the baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. Most people have paid no attention to Christ. They haven't even bothered to read his words once. You can sit down and read through all four Gospels in an afternoon. And in an entire lifetime, they won't even sit down and read. And yet they'll go on social media and say absolutely silly things like Jesus never judged anyone. When the reality is that Jesus said, do you know why people hate me? He says, because I testify against them that their deeds are evil. That's why they hate me. And if people would just read once, they would have some of these illusions resolved in their minds but they're too busy, too distracted, too entertained. They have no time for Jesus. The first and most important lesson 
from Isaiah 53 is behold the son. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold my servant, says the Lord. Well, then verse 13 says, behold my servant. And, and it says something about the servant. He says, behold, my servant will prosper. If you're looking at the New American Standard, it translates this word as will prosper. If you're looking, though, at the English Standard Version, it translates this word as my servant will act wisely. Then the New King James, he will act prudently. This is a good example of how comparing the different uh, good uh, major Bible English translations can help you get a fuller understanding of the original Hebrew term. There's a reason why the ESV, for example, translates it as act wisely, and then they put a footnote and says, will be successful or will prosper. The reason why both the idea of acting wisely and the idea of prospering or being successful are in the English translations is because they're trying to render the Hebrew term sakal. And the Hebrew term sakal is a word which the scholar, Hebrew scholar Alexander Moitier says combines the ideas of wisdom and effectiveness. So we don't really have a word which combines the ideas of wisdom and effectiveness, but the Hebrew word sakal combines them. It refers to knowing exactly what to do to achieve your intended result. This is saying the Messiah will have wisdom which enables him to always accomplish the mission for which he was sent. He will have sakal. He will have effective wisdom. He'll know exactly what to do in each and every circumstance to accomplish his purpose. Interestingly, this same word, Sakal, was used back in Genesis 3. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve by telling them that they could be like God. And Genesis 3, 6 says that one of the reasons Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit was that it could make one wise. And that's the word Sakal. In other words, it could make one have the ability to have wisdom so that you could always accomplish your intended purpose. You could always know how to achieve your desired result. That's what Adam and Eve wanted. Satan says, you can be like God. And they're like, wow, if we take this fruit, we, like God, will have sakal, the wisdom to always accomplish whatever we want to do. Right? The psalm says, the Lord sits in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. There's another verse that says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. He has the wisdom necessary to always fulfill his will, to always accomplish his purposes. And mankind says, well, we want that for ourselves. We want to always be able to accomplish our intended result. But I want you to think about this. Sakal in the hands of the righteous one is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Sakal in the hands of evil beings is a horrible thing. Because what people want, the result they want to achieve is often wicked. And so having the wisdom to achieve that intended result can lead to great misery. Satan tempted Adam and Eve by holding out the hope that they, just like God, could have Sakal, the effective wisdom which would guarantee they could always achieve their desired outcomes. They wanted control. They tried to wrench it out of the hands of God. 
But that was an illusion. It's an illusion that created beings can have this kind of wisdom. Because to have the wisdom to always accomplish your will requires omniscience and, and, and omnipotence. You have to be all-knowing and all-powerful in order to have perfect call. effective wisdom. And so Romans 1 says that professing to be wise, they became fools. And they traded the truth of God for a lie. They traded God's call for human foolishness. And man's foolish decision to turn away from God's wisdom to seek a wisdom of our own has led to untold misery. So the question is, is there any hope for Sakal, true Sakal, to return to this fallen world? How can this world ever experience the blessings of God's Sakal, his effective wisdom? And verse 13 says, look, there is hope for this. The Messiah will bring true sakal, true effective wisdom to this desperate world. You don't need to turn there, but let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 23, which uses this same Hebrew term. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely. That's sakal. He will reign as king and have effective wisdom. And what will that produce? It says, he will do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. He will reign as king and he will manifest the call, effective wisdom. And that will produce justice and righteousness and salvation and security. In other words, after all of the thousands of years of bumbling stupidity and illogical wickedness which people have suffered at the hands of foolish and wicked human rulers, there is coming a wonderful day when Jesus will reign and he will bring sakal to this world, effective wisdom. We will no longer bemoan the absolute idiocy of wicked human rulers with their bumbling and their stumbling and their outright evil. The king of all kings will come, and he has Sakal. Look now at the second phrase of verse 13. Not only does the Messiah have divine wisdom, but it says, He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He will be high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. And these words should ring a bell for us because they were used back in chapter 6, verse 1. Then again in chapter 33, verse 10, and then they will be used again in chapter 57, verse 15. And in all three of the other passages where these words occur, they are used to describe God. Remember Isaiah 6, verse 1. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Who is the one who is high and exalted? It is God. And so Isaiah 52 verse 13 is yet another verse which provides powerful evidence for the deity of Christ, the deity of the Messiah. As the Moody commentary puts it, quote, his exaltation is described with the glorious language of Isaiah chapter six verse one. The same Hebrew words are used of the servant as are used of God. 
This, yes, this is the son who will be born to us. He is fully man. But this is no mere man. This is the God man. This is the one who is fully God and fully man. He is the one high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And he is also the one who walks among us. Now I want you to also notice the threefold progression of those words in verse 13. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. High, lifted up, and greatly exalted. I want to read you a quote by Arnold Fruchtenbaum because I think he really gets this idea and, and explains it really well. Quote, verse 13 summarizes the activities of the Messiah in three points. He shall be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. First, he would be high. The Hebrew term here is room, meaning to rise. It refers to Messiah's resurrection. Second, the servant would be lifted up. The Hebrew term is nasah, meaning to lift, to carry, or to take. It is a reference to Messiah's ascension. Third, the servant would be greatly exalted, or gavah in Hebrew. It is a reference to Messiah's present position at the right hand of the Father. In summary, verse 13 presents a concise overview of the servant's earthly ministry, including his resurrection, his ascension, and his present exaltation in heaven, end quote. Alec Moidier agrees, writing, quote, the threefold exaltation, raised, lifted up, and highly exalted, expresses a dignity beyond what any other merits or receives, and is surely intended as a clue leading to the identity of the servant. It is impossible not to be reminded of the resurrection, the ascension, and the heavenly exaltedness of the Lord Jesus, end quote. So in verse 13, we've kind of seen two major points. It introduces the deity of the Messiah and then the exaltation of the Messiah. It introduces the deity of the servant because he has sakal, divine wisdom which accomplishes all that he intends. And then it introduces his exaltation, his threefold exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension, and his glorification. Next, look at verses 14 and 15. And what I want you to do is look at the first words of verse 14 and the first words of verse 15. Verse 14 says, just as, and then verse 15 says, thus, or so also. So you have just as, and then so also. There is a connection between these two verses, between verses 14 and 15. And there is a comparison that's being made. Just as, so also. There's a comparison being made between what is said in verse 14 and what is said in verse 15. And here's the comparison. Just as many people were astonished by the servant's suffering, so also many will be astonished by his triumph. There's a contrast between his suffering and his triumph. So to kind of show this to you, I've borrowed a structural outline from Alec Moitier, and I've simplified it and then modified it quite a bit to kind of help you see it. So it's kind of a, an outline in kind of a, a conceptual form. In verse 14, you have, just as many were astonished at you. That's referring to a reaction of revulsion. And that's compared then in verse 15 with so also, or thus, 
he will sprinkle many nations. This is a reaction of repentance. So there's a reaction of revulsion contrasted with a reaction of repentance. And then each of those have two kind of key subpoints. Under the reaction of revulsion, you have an appearance so marred and a form so dehumanized. And then under a reaction of repentance, you have something never told yet seen and something never heard yet believed. So this is kind of the structure of these two verses, and I want to just kind of walk you through them. In verse 14, the Hebrew text says, just as many were astonished at you, at you. Now, the text doesn't specify who's being referred to by that word you. So there are some translators who think it's referring to the people of the Messiah, and others think it's referring to the Messiah himself. But I think because the Hebrew word you there is in the singular the best interpretation is that it's referring to the Messiah, to him as an individual. Just as many were astonished at you. The father's directing his attention to the son and saying, they were astonished at you. Now, what does it mean when it says many people were astonished by the Messiah? This is surprised, right? They were surprised by him, but what kind of surprise? Is this a positive surprise or a negative surprise? Well, the Hebrew word means to be surprised in a very negative sense. They were astonished in the sense of being surprised by how revolting something or someone is. It's the type of astonishment that you might get if you go to a nice restaurant and order an expensive meal and you wait and wait for the meal and you're expecting something wonderful and when they bring it out, it's something that disgusts you, that you don't like and that you don't want to eat, and you push it away. Verse 14 is saying that people expected the Messiah to be someone they would really like, but he turned out to be someone they hated. They were surprised, because they thought they would like him, but they found out they didn't. They were astonished at him, in a very negative sense. They were astonished by how off-putting they found him to be, His appearance was unimpressive. His disciples were common fishermen and former tax collectors. His teaching was convicting and offensive. And then he died naked on a cross, beaten and battered. Just something to turn your nose away from. They thought they would like him. They had been waiting for the coming of the Messiah. All of these years, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. A son is going to be born to us, right? He's going to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. And people are like, yes. Oh, we can't wait for the Messiah to come. And then the Messiah came and they couldn't stand him. And again, as I said earlier, Jesus explained why. He says, they hate me because I testify against them that their deeds are evil. They wanted someone who would come and tell them how wonderful they are. Instead, he came and told them how wicked they were. That was off-putting to them. They thought they were super righteous, and he came and said, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you look beautiful, but inside, you're full of death. And so they at the end, shouted, crucify. That's, that's what we want with him. And then they spent hours beating and torturing him so badly his appearance was marred to the point where he didn't even look human. 
When he came, the beginning verses of, of Isaiah 53, he had no kind of special appearance or majesty. He had a very common physical appearance. Nothing special to draw us to him. But that common appearance then was marred by the torture to the point where he didn't even look human anymore. Just as many were astonished or appalled at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. What does it mean when it says marred more than any person? Well, first of all, the effects of the beatings and torture on the physical appearance of Jesus must have been stomach-churning. When you read all that was done to him, it had to be stomach-churning to look at him. But it wasn't just the physical effects that I think made his appearance so revolting to so many. You know, hatred changes the way you look at someone and the way you see them. And I think as Jesus hung there on the cross, he looked to the scribes and the Pharisees and all the people who rejected and hated him. He looked more despicable to them than anyone they had ever seen. He was marred physically, yes. It was stomach-churning to look at but they also hated him and the eyes of hatred see revulsion. These are people who had just decided they would rather live with a violent criminal like Barabbas than to have Jesus around anymore. And so the physical torture combined with the hatred in their hearts made Jesus look to them more disgusting, disfigured, and inhuman than anyone else in the world. They couldn't stand him. I think there's a third reason, though, why verse 14 says that Jesus' appearance and form was marred more than any other. As he was hanging there on the cross, he was bearing the wrath of God towards sin. The New Testament says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. In other words, he had taken upon himself all the ugly awfulness of the sin of the whole world. And so in spiritual and physical agony, he cries out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? bearing all of the ugly awfulness of all of the evil committed by all of mankind in his body on the cross. That's why he was marred more than any man and in his form marred more than the sons of men. And so we see in verse 14 the reaction of revulsion. Revulsion, rejection. But then that's contrasted in verse 15 with a reaction of repentance. Just as many people reacted to him with revulsion, so also many others will respond to him with repentance. Thus, verse 15 says, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And this verse begins by saying that the Messiah will sprinkle many nations. And the word used here is the exact same one used in Exodus chapter 29, verses 20 through 21, and then again in Leviticus 4, 6, and Leviticus 16, verses 14 through 19, for the forgiveness which God gave to the people of Israel when the blood of the sacrificial lamb was sprinkled on the mercy seat. 
He's going to sprinkle many nations. This forgiveness which comes through the shedding of blood is now going to be given to the nations. And it says that the kings of the nations will be silenced, that they will see what they haven't been told. They'll understand what they have not heard. You know, in the Old Testament, most of the nations, they didn't have access to the word of God. But now, what they hadn't told and they hadn't heard, now they're going to see and understand because the gospel is going to go out to all the nations of the world. In fact, Paul cites this verse, verse 15, in Romans chapter 15, verses 21, and he cites it as the reason why he didn't want to build on anyone else's foundation, why he wanted to go to as many nations as possible to preach the gospel. He knew that the Messiah was going to sprinkle many nations, and so he wanted to be the means by which that prophecy was fulfilled. The Messiah will sprinkle many nations. Many will respond to his gospel with repentance. And by the way, this prophecy of global revival stands in stark contrast to the discouraging prophecy which Isaiah had received about his own ministry back in chapter 6. There's parallel wording between chapter 52, verse 15, and chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Remember what was said to Isaiah in, in Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. So remember he said, you know, God says, whom shall I send who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then God says, go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive, keep on looking but do not understand. Same wording as in chapter 52. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? How long is this reaction of rejection going to go on? And God answers him, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, the land is utterly desolate, and the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, there will be a tenth portion in it, there's going to be a remnant, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is chopped down, and the holy seed is its stump. The same words, when God says, go Isaiah, keep preaching, they're not going to listen, keep showing them, they won't understand. No one's going to listen to you, no one's going to respond. Same thing is told to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, go and preach, no one's going to listen to you, no one's going to respond. That's discouraging prophecy about the rejection of many is now eclipsed by a new prophecy about the reception of the Messiah's message. The Expositor's Commentary points out that the, the unmistakable similarity in wording between chapter 52, verse 15, and chapter 6, verse 9. And they say, quote, note the striking reversal here of the discouraging words of Isaiah's commission. Chapter 6, it says that Israel will hear Isaiah's message but will not understand or respond to it. But here in 52, verse 15, using very similar words, it says that many whole nations will understand and respond to the Messiah's message. The revival will eclipse the rejection. The discouragingly meager initial response to the prophets will be eclipsed by the massive global response to the Messiah that will come later. And the New Testament tells us that when all is said and done by the second coming, there will be an uncountable harvest of souls from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. 
And this had to be super encouraging to Isaiah when the Lord revealed this to him. Back in chapter 6, when he began his ministry, it's like, Isaiah, preach, no one's going to listen to you. But now it says, but Isaiah, when the Messiah comes, he is going to suffer. And yes, he will be rejected. But then he will rise and his good news will go out to the whole world and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will respond with repentance. It won't all be in vain, Isaiah, so keep preaching. And I think this is a good encouragement for you and I as well. You share the gospel and people just kind of blow it off. You share the gospel and people get upset with you. You try to lead your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers to Christ and they can respond with hostility or just apathy or whatever and it can get discouraging. But remember, remember that the gospel triumphs in the end. Just as many have responded with rejection of Christ, so also many from many nations will respond with repentance. There is an abundant harvest that will be brought in. So lift up your eyes and look. The fields are ripe for the harvest. So go be a worker in the harvest field. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Isaiah had to often think, all my labor's in vain. Jeremiah had to think, my labor's all in vain. But in the end, there will be an uncountable number from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation who will be gathered around the throne with us worshiping the Messiah. Well, that brings us to the end of the first stanza. We've seen that the first stanza has revealed the servant of the Lord as the one who has divine wisdom and will be exalted. Jesus is the divine Messiah and his wisdom is so effective that he accomplishes everything that he is sent by the Father to do. He is the one who is exalted, exalted, exalted. He is resurrected, ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes, he will suffer and be marred more than any other man as he bears the awful ugliness of the sin of the whole world but his suffering will bring salvation to the nations he will sprinkle many nations and so the conclusion is that just as many have rejected him so also many will receive him. And the question for each of us is, which one of those describes you? Will you reject him or will you receive him? Will you, as the first word says, behold the servant? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, these first three verses of this glorious passage have reminded us, Lord, of your exaltation. Lord, this is the revelation of the exalted servant, the one who rose from the dead, who ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and who is coming again in glory. Lord, just as there are many who reject him, so also there are many who repent and receive him. And I pray Lord, that each soul in this room will be among those who repent and believe the good news. Thank you for coming to save us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. In a couple minutes.